0: DiscerningHearts.com presents The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. Dr. Doran is a board-certified neurosurgeon with over 25 years of experience and is also an ordained permanent deacon and serves as the bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He is the author of To Die Well, a Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life, the book on which this series is based. His writings in bioethics, neurosurgery, and gene therapy for brain disorders have been widely published in national media outlets, academic journals, and neurosurgery textbooks. He is also the co founder of Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. The Final Journey Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Steve.
1: Uh, Thank you so much, Chris. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Thank you for being with all of us and helping us to understand some very, very important things concerning dying well. And a term that I think many of us have heard, but I didn't really appreciate the depths of our need to understand is the area of brain death. When is it that we die? I think for many of us, when does somebody die? When they stop breathing, their heart stops. But that's essentially what they called a a cardiovascular criteria, right? That you would maybe listen to their heart, maybe are they breathing? That's how it was determined. But it's not as simple as that. That changed over time, especially in the 20th century, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it did. I mean, I mean, the, the old Western movies, you know, they hold a mirror and see if it fogs. And if it didn't fog, you know, the person wasn't breathing and, and they were dead. So the, the cardiorespiratory criteria, if you technically, what it would be called, you're, you're, you're dead when your heart stops beating and you stop breathing. I, I think before we go too much further than this, I think it's really important to understand that death for us as individuals, is, it's an ontological event. That is, it's, it's, a, it's an event in our lives where our soul separates from the body. And there's no way we can measure that, okay? For us as Christians, that's what death is. But there's practical decisions then about when death occurs. And that's mostly what we're talking about here, is the biological criteria that are acceptable to say that someone is no longer alive. It's tied to, but separate from the sense of death as it really is, our soul and body becoming separated
0: boy, is that important. I'm so glad you brought that up because, again, that point of when the soul leaves the body that you would think someone has died, but it doesn't necessarily mean technically that their body has experienced death. I think that is because of advanced technologies, as you point out, whether it's ventilation through maybe a ventilator or even after different aspects when it came in the 1950s with heart transplants and so many different other ways of determining whether or not someone was really technically dead, their body is actually, this is the moment. I think that makes it much more complicated in determining, doesn't it? I mean, when is someone actually, the body is technically, they're deceased?
1: Yeah, no, it's a very important question. On a practical level, it becomes into play mostly in the event when we're talking about organ donation. It occasionally comes up in more legal matters or if family members are in a disagreement or whatever. But by and large, in my experience as a clinician, the vast majority of time where the issue of brain death is, is germane or important is with its connection with organ uh, transplantation.
0: That's when it really became important. I'm just thinking back. Many people may not realize that a wake was held after what was perceived to be someone's death just to make sure that they were actually dead. They would have it in the home. The relative family member would be laid out in state. And it was primarily, it was wake. It was making sure before they were placed in their burial, that before that happened, are they truly, truly dead? And that's kind of, if you were to take that and really bring it down microscopically, that's where we're at today. Because as you talk about with the transplant, when is it the right time to retrieve organs to be given to another? That's quite the challenge, isn't it?
1: It is. And and, and I think that it's becoming more and more challenging based upon our ability to sustain, well, Chris, it, it almost comes, it gets, the, the language gets awkward here, even like, okay, to sustain a dead person on a event layer, that doesn't make sense, right? And so we even have to choose our words very carefully. Who, what are we talking about? And someone who's been declared brain dead, yet their heart and lungs are still functioning. And, and so how do you even refer to that person and how you are treating them? And so it, it gets hard sometimes even to find the right language here to know how to refer to people who's, brain appears not to be functioning anymore and yet their heart and lungs are still functioning and that the boundaries of that get pushed further and further and further with more and more technology i think that you know just to kind of draw back for a second why is even brain death an issue when it comes to organ transplantation well you know there's certain organs in your body that you only have one of you only have one heart you only have one liver for example and that without either of those two as an example you would die so you can't take an unpaired organ, like a heart or a liver, from someone who's still alive because you would be killing them. So that's the very blunt way of saying why do we even have this issue of brain death is because if someone's not already dead and you took your heart or your liver, you're killing them. You can't cause the death of a person by retrieving their organs. And also, our posts all said, you know, organ donation is an act of love. And I don't want anybody to think that this is some arguments organ donation is something that's not good It's very good it's a very very good thing just has to be done properly so the reason why we have brain death to begin with is you can't kill somebody to take their organs and so how are we then going to be able to morally and ethically retrieve organs from people that and those organs are still useful and vital and that's where brain death criteria have evolved from
0: i'm glad you said that i think we have to treat this also reverently because we are talking about a human person We're talking about people that have family relationships, who had hopes and dreams, and for whatever reason at this moment, this is the time of their passing. And so to be able to respect that, and more often than not, their desire to be able to give to others in the form of an organ transplant. St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI have written about this, and you cite this in the book. You're very careful in your notations as far as what the church teaches on this. There are a little caveat there that John Paul brings out. It does not seem to conflict with essential elements of sound anthropology. Well, what we understood death to be in the 1950s may be a little bit different Today in the two thousand twenties, when is that moment? When is that anthropologically is that death occurring as we understand it now?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting that the fact that that when the brain is dead, the person is dead. Why that in and of itself is the criteria, right? Why 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 not when the liver is dead? But there certainly, obviously, is something very super important about the brain. That's it's the integrator, the, where the seat of our mind, our intellect. So. So it isn't just arbitrary that we use the brain, the the death of the brain, as the, the indicator of the death of the person. But what we've found over the years, that our ability to tell when someone's brain is actually no longer functioning, we're finding out that in times in the past when we thought someone's brain was no longer functioning, well, in fact, it probably was. Portions of it were functioning. We just didn't have a way to measure it. And that's created a number of conundrums that we're dealing with right now. There, there was a very famous case here in our own town of Omaha of a of a young boy who developed meningitis and continued to, I would say, live, you know, another, I think, 12 years or something like that. I'd have to look back at the exact number. And when he died, they did an autopsy and there was no evidence of any brain, nothing. So how can that be? You know, how can that be? Now, his lungs were supported with a ventilator and he had feeding tube and things like that. but So there's these cases that at first seemed extraordinary that kind of, Kind of made us pause a little bit. Is this is this an appropriate criteria to say someone's dead if their brain is dead? Or in the book, I talk about another case here from Omaha of a woman who was declared brain dead who continued to gestate a, a pregnancy for for weeks afterwards. So with technology, more and more cases have have challenged the idea that the way that we have been measuring the death of the brain isn't sufficient that people continue to carry a baby. So some that we're missing something here. Either the brain isn't. The absolute mark of death, or we're not measuring the death of the brain properly, and, and it's probably more that that uh, these individuals who continue to, again, I would say, live on a ventilator. Yet they're supposedly—it's so hard—they're declared dead, but yet we're saying they're living. And so there's these nuances where someone who's sustained on a ventilator, okay, if we use that word, someone who's been de- declared brain dead, so their their bodies are being sustained on a ventilator. Well probably the hypothalamus was, was a small portion of the brain controlling hormonal function and blood pressure control and things like that probably is still working. And we don't have good ways to measure whether the hypothalamus is functioning or not. And so I think that probably explains why these cases are becoming more and more, they're still not still not common, but becoming more reported because we are better able to sustain people on ventilators and other equipment. Uh, people are surviving longer with, with support. There was just a case, you know, this past few months, an individual they're they're doing research out at an institution where they're having individuals who have been declared brain dead and then transplanting a pig kidney into their body to see if pig kidneys may ultimately be a good source for people who are in kidney failure. That's a good end. I think that's fine. that would be great. There's a storage of kidneys, but it really it really stretches the idea that, okay, if this person is truly brain dead how can you sustain their body for months months intentionally sustain their body for months to see if this pig kidney would work or the converse is if they're not really dead then you're doing experiments on someone without their consent so these things sound like they're esoteric issues, but but it it, it, it it seems like at the limits of science the limits of medicine is where Where we're always pushing, and when we push is when we run into problems.
0: I think this is an important conversation to have because what I hear you saying, this really affects the disposition of heart. Speaking to you as deacon, Stephen Doran, the disposition of the soul of not just the, the decision makers in the family, but also the medical practitioners that would look upon the person in all reverence who is experiencing possibly this brain death when has to either have organs donated or who's being sustained with extraordinary means that that person entering into the decision is looking at the wholeness of the individual and that decisions are being made with a a number of different criteria particularly the integrity, the the dignity of the human person, as opposed to maybe a more utilitarian use of that human person, that you can kind of fall into that trap because you think you're doing something good, so we're going to use this person. Okay, and it has a lot to do with those who are left behind. Where's the disposition of heart here?
1: I think think the thing that that especially complicates this. And again, I'm just going to emphasize again: organ donation is an act of love. Well, there's a shortage of organs. Please, please, please don't think that I'm saying it's a bad thing. But what happens though in the in organ donation, a third person's introduced into this into the situation. Normally, it's the person, the patient, or their or their caregivers who are deciding for them, and then the healthcare providers. That's the team. That's who's making decisions. No one has any vested interest one way or another. Organ donation inserts a third party into it, a third party who has their own interests, and that complicates things. And there's been studies that have actually shown that once the decision to donate organs happens, all of a sudden patients' families felt that everything changed. How they were treated or how their loved one was being treated all of a sudden changed, and the donation experience was Upsetting to them, and they felt like this is a commodity. We've got someone else who's got a vested interest who's driving the decisions right now. I'm not saying that happens all the time, um, again, but it it changes. You've got a third party inserted into this into this relationship who's got a vested interest, and that's always a risky thing. We all have our own vested interests. I get that, but the person and who needs an organ who's being represented by you know like an organ retrieval organization. They have a vested interest, and their vested interest is to obtain organs for people.
0: Tell me if I'm phrasing this right. There's a potential for an anxiety to be introduced into this through the third party that you only have so much time, that you need to retrieve at a particular point in the body. As I was reading in the book, the example of retrieving a heart You've got a better chance of it being successful if you can get it just moments after the actual death of the person. And again, I say this in all reverence, but that can be a real challenge, can it?
1: It can be, in in that the process of decision-making at the end of life is difficult as it is. Where we live in Nebraska, for example, the hospital is legally required to notify the Nebraska organization in charge of organ retrieval. If someone's death appears to be pending, they're legally obligated to call this organization but then has the legal right to come in and to look at the chart, talk to the family. Yeah, it's it's hard enough as it is to go through this. Now, maybe it was very clear to a family in advance that, you know, their their loved one had very strongly said, I really want to donate organs. And and the, the introduction of the organ retrieval organization isn't at all stressful. It's welcome. That's great. This is what this is what they wanted. Beautiful. But that's not always the case. And so to your point that just adds more anxiety to an otherwise very difficult situation to begin with. So, so yeah, it can get it can get can get difficult.
0: That's where I think when you mentioned in the book that that particular statement from John Paul if rigorously applied does not seem to conflict with the essential elements of a sound anthropology. So even as someone of faith, we can't just be settled in the the belief that well the church supports organ donation. Now I'm just gonna say it for the record like you, I'm I'm a card carrying donor, okay? I'm I think it is important and there are many people who benefit from organ donation. But we still have to be open to the struggle, don't we almost? To continually quest to make sure that this is the right thing, that we may not always know everything. Then We just know what we know today, but we could learn more.
1: Well, and I think Benedict even warned against it. Even the, latest, even the smallest sense of arbitrariness has to be avoided. None of these decisions can be arbitrary, you know, and, and you're not going to have to err on the side of the person whose organs they were gifted with by God. I mean, you're always going to err on that side. So, so I think that we do have to recognize that the church is, in many ways, receptive and open and supportive of organ donation and by extension current criteria for brain death but you have to realize that there's a not a small number of non-dissenting catholics who are questioning this and whether we need to relook at this again and are our current criteria adequate and if not what do we need to do to change it because what's happening what's happening is that the secular world also recognizes that okay wait a minute this doesn't make any sense Someone supposedly is dead, yet they're on a ventilator for three months, having a baby or having a pig kidney. This brain death criteria doesn't work anymore. The Catholic response would be to let's shore up the idea of brain death. Let's make sure it's rigorously applied. Let's make sure we truly can identify whether someone's brain is not. The second response is to say, well, let's just get rid of brain death altogether. And instead, instead, we're going to take someone's organs if they're just hopelessly injured. You know, very vague criteria. Well, I, the the exact language that I've heard read, but basically says that if someone sustained a severe neurological injury, that in and of itself, or in a or in a sustained coma, whatever that means, that in and of itself is enough to take their organs. So if we don't get this right, the secular world is going to also say it's not adequate, and they're going to propose and are proposing less stringent criteria. In fact, it's called the Universal Declaration of Death Act, the UDDA. That was back in 1981, which said the, the death of the whole brain marked the death of the person. So 1981, this declaration was made federal statutes and all that. Well, now people want to revise the UDDA and recognizing that, well, probably the hypothalamus has been functioning so instead of saying okay, you still have to be brain dead, you still have to find out whether the hypothalamus is functioning or not, they're now wanting to exclude the hypothalamus and say okay, this part of the brain can still stay alive. That's okay. The, if the rest of the brain is gone, that's that's fine. You know, if the rest of the brain's dead, we're good. And in fact, American Academy of neurologists basically said the same thing that the idea of the entire brain being dead, which was what was meant to be the criteria for someone dying, we're going to fudge a little bit. We're going to recognize that probably people are declared brain dead under current criteria, but still not fully brain dead. They still got a little bit of the brain functioning, but we're going to let that pass. We're going to say that's okay. Well, that's, again, we, we've got to stand firm on this. And I, I give a lot of credit to our Catholic institutions, uh, the bishops, the USCCB, who've really say no, 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 we can't go down this route. And so, again, what seems to be kind of some arbitrary or esoteric thing it is super important super important because it's it's at the edges that he rode away and it's and we're, and we're seeing in this in this exact area right now this is like news that's going on now as we speak
0: it really is the slippery slope like you said you're right on the edge of who determines ultimately especially as we get to to know more we find out we don't know enough and that's I think, where we have to be very careful. I hesitate to use this term, but I think I probably would be remiss if I didn't. The term harvest, harvesting for our greater good. But we need to harvest it now to be able to help the other. What are we losing? What part of our souls are we chipping away at? We have to be very careful. And I think that's why the church has to be brought into this, because I think even those who make that determination, you shouldn't be making it alone. Am I making sense in all of that?
1: Well, I, th- I, think, I think the language chosen often reflects the attitude within. And, and the word harvest is what is, I will be honest with you, within the, the walls of the, of the hospital would be, oh, this person's going for organ harvest. Or even when I was a, when I was a medical student, I was on the, the transplant service. And there was the harvest team, you know. Now, that language more often is more now, say, procurement, which sounds better. But I'll be honest with you, that's how it's referred to. Oh, uh, they're going for organ harvest. This person's going down the operating room where the harvest team's going to be here. So so our language reflects our, our thoughts and our heart maybe not intended. And so it it comes down to this, uh, the the person becoming a commodity, becoming, as you said, and utilized in a utilitarian fashion. And so, yeah, I think that word reflects what we have to be pushing back against, the dignity of a person. We don't harvest things from people. So why is that word offensive? You know, there's so many words, the word police are out there for so many different things right now. Well, here's a word that, says, no, oh, no, no, we, we can't refer it because this is a, this is a, an affront to the dignity of the person, to use that word.
0: I was a surgical tech when I was at college, and that was the term. It was organ harvesting. Amongst other things, it just has stayed with me. I think that's one of the reasons why I left, ultimately. Just because you can't lose the sense of the dignity of the person. It says a lot about our society and our culture, doesn't it?
1: It does. Any t- time a person is used as a means to an end, that's never good. And we can never use people. can never use people.
0: Given your role as a neurosurgeon, you have had to be at that moment to help determine that criteria to be able to say that this person yes, this is the moment or no, maybe it's not.
1: Yeah, I've been involved in quite a few of those determinations over the years.
0: What kind of guidance then would you have for not only the medical practitioner, but the family members. in having heard even the portion of our discussion here, what would you guide them towards? And it's a difficult, it's a very, very difficult experience if your loved one is at that undetermined state.
1: I guess my advice would be there's a urgency either expressed or implied that we shouldn't buy into. That uh, I, as a practitioner or as a family member, will experience a sense of urgency. I think you brought that up earlier. And to the extent that you can say, "Yeah, maybe so," but this there's just certain things you can't rush. I don't I don't care what someone else needs at this moment. I mean, I care. That sounds bad. But the needs of that third party that I talked about right now they they're not in the conversation. The conversation is between. The clinician and the family member, and so many things that at the end of life, people have this come preloaded thing of "we well, got to decide right away, I have to do something immediately." Well, they, yeah, sometimes, sometimes you have to make a decision immediately, but usually not. I mean, usually it's usually it's like, "Okay, okay I, I take a breath. I'm gonna. I need to think about this. I need to pray about this. And can we talk again tomorrow or later on this afternoon?" So, I, I guess what I would say if if there's a something to take away from this conversation is don't buy into the fallacy of urgency here too much and take time to think and take time to pray and it'll all work out.
0: What would be the prayer for this? What even if it's just this simple, what what is the grace that one is asking for in this moment?
1: I guess I would say the grace that I would ask for if it we're me making that decision as the clinician or the or the family member is that, Lord, I trust you and and I need your help. I need your help. You never know how things are going to go at the end of your life and you may think you anticipate all the situations and you don't. And so it really comes back to, I know this sounds like a being self-promoting here, self-serving on this book, is that this preparation begins now so that in the event of our own death or dying process or our loved ones, we've prepared for that moment. And like it says in one of Paul's epistles, God will give you what you need to say when you need it. I'm paraphrasing it badly. And in the same way, God will give you what you need at that time. And so that's that prayer begins now so that the time that prayer becomes just an extension of uh, of your relationship with God.
0: Yeah, lead me, Lord. Lead me, Lord. I think that I think that's exactly what you're helping us to do is to have him lead us through that. And I would be remiss too if I didn't ask for those who or have already encountered this moment in their lives through the death of a loved one who may be listening and say, boy, I did feel rushed, or I do feel like, did I make the right decision for my loved one in that moment? What would you say to them as far as the peace that they should probably feel right now, that you did the best you could at that time? Don't go back and have regrets.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's always a tendency to want to go back and replay things in our mind and what we would do under different circumstances. And I always assume good intent until proven otherwise. Assume good intent. Ignatius says that. It's one of his rules, isn't it, of discernment? Assume good intent. And so I'll assume good intent of myself and I'll assume good intent of the people around me.
0: Dr. Doran, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to The Final Journey: Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. To hear and or to download this episode along with many others, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel this worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran.